And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Earth Destruction Directive. As always, I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Would like to welcome everybody to our show this time out. Uh, we've got a really good show this time. I hope everyone enjoyed our previous episode where I sat down with my good friend and um, podcast mentor in a lot of ways, Mr. Chris Honeywell. We took a look at, of course, King Kong versus Godzilla, the legendary monkey versus lizard movie from 1962. But we've got a real good episode this time out as well. We're going to be taking a look at the uh, classic sci-fi alien invasion film from Toho, The Mysterians, as well as the next issue in Marvel Comics Shogun Warriors ongoing series. But before we get into that, we've got a few bits of news and notes to cover here. Uh, My brother Jay has sent in a little notice with some information regarding upcoming release dates uh, as for feature films that fall into the Daikaiju category. Here's what Jay has to say. He says, LP, hopefully this will be in time for your next episode. All of this info is from Horror Hound issue number 51, which is cover dated January slash February 2015. The Amazon Japan exclusive Steelbook Blu-ray release of Godzilla 2014 comes with an SH Monster Arts Godzilla in red. Retails for about $140. Not sure when exactly that is going to be out. Uh, I have bought, this is breaking out here, I have bought from Amazon.co.jp before. It's tough because it is all in Japanese. Uh, I would recommend a against it unless you are very good at Japanese or you have a middleman. Uh, what I did is I had somebody who was stationed in, um, uh, in in Japan on a military base purchase the item uh, locally and then ship it to me, and that ended up being cheaper. Not everyone, of course, has that option, but something to look out for. Also, of course, check your middleman sites like Mandarake, and they can, you can if you really want to find that. Also, of course, you got eBay at the uh, very latest. Jay continues, Legendary Pictures announced Kong of Skull Island in 3D has a release date of March 10th, 2017. They also announced that Tom Hiddleston, Loki from Thor, will star. So all of the female Daikaiju fans out there should love the fact that Loki is in a movie with King Kong. Uh, Toho Company Limited are planning a brand new, quote, domestic Godzilla film to be released in Japan in 2016. This will be Japan's first Godzilla film since 2004's Godzilla Final Wars. And again, to break out of the email for a second here, I, I saw this. This was all, this news was all over um, in the internet and Facebook a few weeks ago, and this kind of got a lot of play. I say more power to them. I mean, the Godzilla brand can exist in many different uh, incarnations at the same time without hurting uh, the others. You know, we've got the new legendary Godzilla going on at the same time as, say, the IDW Godzilla Rulers of Earth comic, and which is 
you know, a different depiction of Godzilla and a different depiction that we might see in one of their miniseries, like the recently finished Godzilla Cataclysm miniseries. So I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, I'd love to see Toho get back in the game with some traditional Soupmation style Godzilla, see what they come up with. You know, it's um, the, the Japanese King of the Monsters has been on the shelf, like Jay says, for uh, oh, more than 10 years at this point. So I think, uh, I think it's t- high time that we get them. And, you know, hey, more Godzilla is always good, in my opinion. Uh, Jay finishes up. I have found that Horror Hound tends to be pretty good with their news, but no one is perfect, signed Jason. So, Jay, thanks for that information. You know, it looks like the next couple of years are going to be very good years uh, for Daikaiju fans here in the States between releases of uh, Godzilla 2, Pacific Rim 2, King of Skull Island. So we got a lot of good stuff coming down the pike. In some other news, I mentioned previously uh, IDW's Godzilla Rulers of Earth series. Well, Rulers of Earth number 25 has been solicited and is announced as the double-sized finale of the series. Now, you might recall about a year ago, IDW had solicited number 12 as the series finale, and we were all very surprised when the next month... Uh, number 13 showed up in the solicits. And I think it might be kind of a similar situation to what happened with Marvel's Godzilla comic back in the 70s where they had paid the license and it was good for a year and then they renegotiated. They decided to pick the license up for one more year and then at the end of two years they said no more. So I think that's what IDW did here where it looked like 12 issues and then okay, we'll do another 12 and we'll tack on 25 to be the big finale. Um, the uh, Rulers of Earth has been a... It's it's really kind of an action-heavy series. I haven't I haven't talked about it much on the show here because I was trying to wait till it got finished because I knew it had to end at some point and then cover it either in bite-sized chunks or maybe as an ongoing feature. I've been really enjoying it. They've been really digging deep on some of the monsters that they've been using. Sand and Gyra have been making a lot of appearances. Ibera, uh, you know, just the all, multiple versions of Mechagodzilla, including the the modern and the Showa versions. You know, just monsters you don't necessarily expect to see all that often in Godzilla comics were making appearances in this. And it's been a a really kind of fun ride. Uh, But again, I'm going to want to wait till it's all finished and cover it, um, you know, in a way that makes sense. Uh, Also for IDW News, uh, Godzilla Half Century War, which you may remember was covered in episode 21 on this very podcast, is getting an oversized hardcover collection. And frankly, if there's any of IDW's Godzilla series that deserves the oversized hardcover uh, route, it is Half Century War by James Stokoe. Uh, Just a fantastic story, really great manga-style art. Um, but realistic manga style art, not what, you know, some, some folks on the internet like to deride as just, uh, you know, girls with eyes like billiard balls and boobs like beach balls. No, not, not that kind. This is more, you know, uh, what we call boys or men's manga style with a, with a wonderful, um, storyline running through it. And I'd recommend if you haven't heard that episode, go back and listen to it and then check out this hardcover if you don't have the singles. Uh, Diamond Select has uh, a new item out right now, Godzilla Classic Minimates. And I like Minimates. Uh, it's, it's kind of a rabbit hole to fall down because they make so many of them and they're so neat. But the Godzilla Classics Minimates is in stores now. And the set has Godzilla, Hedra, Mechagodzilla, and Jet Jaguar. And Godzilla even has a removable atomic breath accessory, which is so cool. Uh, they're very neat. Uh, normally, I find Minimates at Toys R Us. You can also check at your local comic shop or any other store that orders from Diamond Select. They can usually get this stuff from them. So check those out. And I got that information from sci-fi japan.com. And one last thing, a 
you guys may be aware of this. I was, I'm, I know I've been aware of this. I've been following it when I can. There's been an Ultraman manga going on that's acting sort of as a sequel, sort of as a reboot to the original series. And the Ultraman from that manga is actually being released by Tamashi Nations. And I know what you're saying. Oh, cool, an Ultra Act of the manga Ultraman. Well, not quite. It's actually an SH Figure Arts X Ultra Act figure, so it crosses the lines. It's going to be an SH Figure Arts scale and an SH Figure Arts size box, but it's still part of the Ultra Act line. Um, the pictures of this have started going up. I got this from tokunation.com. Uh, so you can check those out. No information on release date, availability, or price. I strongly suspect that this is going to end up being a web exclusive, which is really frustrating. Uh, I was previously very frustrated by Ultraman 80s Ultra Act becoming an, a web exclusive, which makes it much harder to get here in the States, as well as much more expensive. Um, so we'll see. It looks really neat. He's got kind of a uh, definitely uses that manga style where he looks almost like uh, like a mix of like Ultraman and Iron Man a little bit just from the armor. It's very cool. I suggest checking that out. Like I said, saw those pictures initially on tokunation.com. All right, that's about all the news I've got right now. I'm going to take a quick break, plug in a couple of podcast promos right here, and then we'll be right back to cover the Mysterians here on Earth Destruction Directive. I have called you all here today, at the behest of Don DiManzo, to discuss the expansion of our Jersey territory. Our Don has seen an opportunity to move into Atlantic City at an event called AC Boardwalk Con, which will be happening May 14th through the 17th, 2015. Don DiManzo has asked that some of our made men attend this convention and convince the locals to try two true freaks. Joining me, Gene Hendricks, on this trip will be my Quantum Cast cohort, Jeff Fishman. Chris Tyler, the hair metal hero, will be representing the Boston arm of the family, while Scott McGregor will be representing the New York branch. Our capo, Chris Honeywell, will also be there to provide some added persuasion. Your Don has asked that any of his loyal friends in the area come and pay their respects to this new endeavor. He reminds you that all the information on the event can be found at doacbc.com. That's doacbc.com. Come help us make Atlantic City an offer they can't refuse. Hi folks, Sean Ingle here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. And we're here to talk about the new direction going on over at Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Like our in-depth coverage of the Howard Chaykin pen, Guy Gorker, collateral damage. No, because that book was utter sh. But we are moving into the Judd Winnick run on Green Lantern, where we'll get stories about psychotic ring wielders, teenage sexual identity issues, and Kyle becoming a nearly godlike being. And yet, still not as weird as Guy Gardner's warrior face. Yeah, you may have a point there. Plus, we'll be covering the ancillary books that came out at the same time, including Circle of Fire, A Thousand and One Emerald Knights, The Black Circle Green Arrow Crossover, and so much more. Which will easily make up for not covering collateral damage. 
Also, if you're subscribing to the show via iTunes, be sure to go to Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys to make sure you get new episodes updated weekly. So, they kicked you off the main feed? No, they just streamlined it so the Two True Freaks proper shows would only be on it. Are you sure it's not because Scott doesn't want a Green Lantern podcast on the network? Uh... No, in fact, he's spoken very glowingly about the show. I mean, he's even offered to come on into a guest bit. He said he really likes it, and despite his fact that he doesn't like Green Lantern all that much, he's come check out Just One of the Guys over at TwoTrueFreaks.com and subscribe in iTunes at TwoTrueFreaksPresents Just One of the Guys. You'll be glad you did, or double your money back. The Mysterious! The Mysterious! The Mysterious! You are now inside a flying saucer. Our destination, the planet Earth. We are the Mysterians. Our race is old, dying, our planet dead. Only you of Earth, you and your women, can give us life. And what we want, we take. The Mysterians, the greatest science fiction picture man's imagination ever conceived. The Mysterians, swooping down from outer space, blowing up from the lower depths. The Mysterians. Creatures who knew the uttermost secrets of the atom before our planet was born. Love-hungry spacemen come to seize our women that their dying race may live. It started in the east. Soon it swept the west. The all-out horror of interplanetary war. See giant robots no earthly weapon can destroy rip a path of destruction across the land. See the forces of nature harnessed to the invader's will wipe entire cities from the face of the world. See the earth itself crumble beneath your feet. Threatening our civilization with weapons beyond the belief of modern science. Flying ray guns that blast everything before them. An impregnable fortress that hides in the earth. Gamma rays that melt the heaviest armament. As men and machines disintegrate before Curious. you. What power can stop their ruthless advance? See the blazing holocaust of an earth gone mad. See on the giant screen in flaming color. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And this time out, we're going to be taking a look at The Mysterians. The Mysterians was released on December 28th, 1957 in Japan, and made its way stateside on May 15th, 1959, and its U.S. distributor was MGM. Our story begins when a provincial village's spring ceremony is halted by the sudden appearance of a mysterious forest fire. Ryochi Shirashi, a local astronomer, rushes into the blaze to investigate, but disappears during the confusion. Shortly afterwards, another village, this one near Mount Fuji, is swallowed up by a massive earthquake. While investigating, scientist Atsumi and a group of police officers encounter the giant robot Mogura. The machine stomps its way towards a nearby town that night, where the conventional weapons of the JSDF have little effect. Mogura continues its rampage until it tries to cross the Koyama Bridge, which is detonated by the JSDF engineers, sending the machine toppling down, destroying it. The remains of the robot are studied, revealing that it was constructed with materials which do not exist on Earth. Soon after, strange activity is observed around the moon, and the Mysterians soon make themselves known, raising their domed subterranean base to the surface near Mount Fuji. The Mysterians politely but firmly, demand to speak to a small group of scientists who are escorted into the base. There the Mysterians tell their story. They are the survivors of the planet Mysterioid, which was the fifth planet from our sun before destroyed in a nuclear war. With their advanced science, they wish to have a three-kilometer radius of land and the right to marry Earth women. 
Of course, they then say that they have already seized said land and begun kidnapping said Earthwomen, so the scientists are not impressed. A military force is put together to assault the Mysterians, but their far superior technology easily turns away the assault. The aftermath of the failed attack also reveals that Shirashi has defected to the Mysterians, wishing to learn more of their amazing scientific advances. Japan reaches out to the other nations of the Earth, saying that the Mysterians pose a threat to the entire planet. Nations to the East and West agree, and an allied military response is prepared. The next attack uses the powerful Alpha-class flying battleships, but the superior armor of the Mysterians proves more than a match for the Terran armament. Emboldened, the Mysterians now demand an even larger radius of land and step up their efforts to kidnap women for breeding stock. But the humans are not sitting on their laurels, and their deadliest weapon yet devised, the Markalite Cannon, a gigantic dish-shaped gun which can reflect the Mysterians' energy attacks back at them. Among those kidnapped by the Mysterians are Atsumi's sister Etsuko and her friend Hiroko, who is Shirashi's former fiancé, which drives Atsuki to search for them, locating a secondary entrance to the Mysterians' base in the process. As the Markalite cannon assault begins, Atsumi meets up with Shirashi in the base, who eventually has a change of heart. The two men rescue the kidnapped women and sabotage the base, with Shirashi sacrificing himself in the process. Combined with the Markalite assault outside, the base begins to crumble, forcing the Mysterians to retreat in their UFOs. But though they have been forced off the Earth now, we are all left to wonder, what will happen if they someday return? Our story this time out, it, it's pretty perfunctory, which is really a change from some of the other films from this era, from Toho. I'm speaking specifically about, like, Godzilla or Rodan, which came before this. Uh, but it's more in line with some of the films that would come after. I'm thinking specifically of, like, Battle in Outer Space, films more like Gorath, you know, more their science fiction-y type films, not necessarily their monster films. The focus is much more on the special effects. We've got a lot of large-scale disaster effects pretty much throughout the entire running length of the film. We've got landslides, floods, fire, earthquakes, you know, uh, military engagements, robots stomping around, all that kind of stuff. So it's very much... Uh, you know, more of a style over substance sort of film, which is a bit odd, but, you know, it, 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 it represents a new level of kind of technical complexity for Toho, so it makes sense that they would kind of move in this direction, at least for this film. Uh, one thing I do have to say right off the bat is that this film has a great soundtrack, absolutely fabulous. The best aspect of the film, far and away, is the soundtrack, one of Ifakube's best from his early works here. Uh, cues from this would get rearranged and repurposed all throughout the Godzilla series and all throughout Toho's other films throughout this era. Just very bombastic and, you know, um, powerful and very militaristic, and it's really very impressive sounding soundtrack. Uh, there are a couple of CD soundtracks available. I would recommend just going on YouTube and listening to it. You can find it all there. It's really a lot of fun, and it's really good stuff. Um, so that, you know, it's one of those things. It's a Two True Freaks podcast, so we have to talk about the the soundtrack to the films. But this one, it really adds a lot. So even when there's, you know, not necessarily a lot of you know human emotion going on, there's a lot of emotions being created by the use of the combination of the the visuals and the effects along with the soundtrack kind of, you know, pumping through in the background there. Early on in the film, we get the investigation by Atsumi into the, uh, the village that was swallowed up by the earthquake. I'd like a small aside here. I totally did not plan to do this film right after King Kong. I didn't even think of that 
do it after King Kong vs. Godzilla, I mean, where the scenes of the floods and earthquakes in the American version of King Kong vs. Godzilla come from this, so it was very familiar to me. But anyway, um, the scene of them investigating the village that was swallowed up by the earthquake has, um, you know, scenes of uh, the scientists using Geiger counters to measure radiation, uh, piles of dead fish, you know, as they're going through kind of the aftermath. These have kind of moved into the realm of cliché for a Daikaiju film, but in 1957, this was still pretty neat stuff. I talked about this back on our uh, episode 30, talking about Gojira, is that the scenes of them investigating on Odo Island with the Geiger counters, you know, that's a, a classic sort of trope of the genre, but it's still new, new-ish in 1957, and its, its place um, was not surprising. Even though there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that there would be radioactivity in 1957, one would imagine that the Japanese authorities would, you know, want to make sure of that. And the piles of dead fish, we, I mentioned this, I'm pretty sure, back on the episode regarding um, Prophecies of Nostradamus, you know, for a nation that gets so much of its not only sustenance, but also its industry from fishing. You know, the piles and piles of dead fish is a, uh, that, that's a very grim visage. You know, it's, I always think of, um, you know, we, we see images of like the American prairie, you know, during the Dust Bowl with, you know, uh, cattle dying in droves. That has the same kind of effect, I think, for us here in the West as such an image was um, in, in the East. During said investigation, Mogura emerges out of a hill, and it's actually a very nice combined shot where we see the effect shot in the background of Mogura smashing out of a hill and going beep, 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 because that's what robots do in the 50s. You know, everybody knows that. But then in the foreground, we've got Atsumi and the police officers kind of scrambling back and reacting to him and getting back behind their uh, the door of their police car. It's actually a really nicely done combined shot. Now, these can be tricky because you, you, you do with rear projection, you know, do you do just combining the film together? Do you optically print the two together? So there's a lot of different ways you can do it. I'm not sure exactly how they did it. Toho did a lot of rear projection at this time, but this looks better than most of their rear projection. So I'm, I was really impressed with that shot. It's actually really cool, and it's a cool introduction to Mogra who, um, you know, he's not in the film very much. He mostly has this scene, and then a second one pops up later at the end of the film. Uh, but it's very memorable, and everybody really, you know, has, I think, a soft spot for a big, clunky robot like Mogura, especially after he came back in the Hayside period. Um, Mogura's optical attacks, and I say that as a double entendre because they are fired from his eyes, and they ostensibly would be what we would call an optical effect, are a little primitive here because they're actually scratched directly on the film and so they really stand out they're very very vibrant even on the bootleg dvd that i was watching and it really is it, it's it's kind of a novel look compared to some of the um you know we get some opticals from toho in the 60s especially in the later 60s they'll kind of washed out and faded a little bit whereas this looks really really you know whoa, right in your face it's really a neat look as he kind of levels this village uh, as I said, Moga's a big, clunky, old-fashioned robot. He's more in line with somebody like Robbie the Robot or Tobor. Everybody loves Tobor uh, than we would expect from, like, Mechagodzilla or even Jet Jaguar or later robots that Toho would play around with. But he's, he's got some charm to him. You know, he just kind of stomps around and beeps and does his thing. There's a really neat uh, scene of him st you know, stomping into the village where we see as he's busting through the power lines, we see the, the lights kind of brown out in the village and then totally go off. It's actually a really realistic touch in the effect. Uh, 
I also like that Mogra is beaten in a logical manner. You know, they, they fire on him with uh, guns and tanks and flamethrowers and nothing seems to stop him. So they lure him onto the bridge and blow up the bridge. And it's like, okay, that's a, that's a reasonable, logical way to beat a giant robot like that who clearly can't fly, just kind of walks around. So I really like that a, a lot. And it's a neat scene, too, where it, it's really nicely, again, nicely composited uh, combined shot there of Mogra stalking onto the bridge and then everybody, the engineers fleeing and then the bridge blowing up. Really neat. I think more people know the Mysterians from Mogra more than anything else, and so I think it's very surprising the first time you watch it that he's really not in the film all that much. He has his one kind of big scene at the beginning, like I said, and then pops up again at the end, but you know, the film is not, he's not like the monster of the film, so to speak. Uh, the plot point that's used in this of the robot being built of alien material, of course, would be recycled many years later in the Mechagodzilla movies with my personal favorite fictitious metal of all time, space titanium. Uh, and it's used in much the same way to find the origins of the robots. Like, oh, it's not from Earth. This is a metal that doesn't exist on our planet. Da, 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 da. So I thought it was neat seeing it way back here in the 50s as well. What's funny is when the Mysterians um, demand politely demand that the scientists come and see them, the scientists make the statement that they hope the Mysterians will be reasonable. And this is, of course, very quickly dispelled. The Mysterians claim to be pacifists to the last, uh, but clearly they're not. And this is kind of a running trend of alien invasion forces in Toho's science fiction efforts, both monster movies and otherwise, is, you know, aliens that are basically lying through their teeth about their intentions. I don't know if this is, you know, something about commentary on the West. I don't know if this is just kind of a, um, you know, more of an Asian cliche about the, uh, you know, smiling with forked tongue. But it is enough of a cliche to be a trend that we see in these films. And the Mysterians kind of pretty much started all started it all off as far as Toho is concerned. You know, the idea of the aliens jumping the gun when they make their demands, this would, uh, again, appear uh, again in the uh, Toho series. I'm thinking specifically of the Exians from uh, Monster Zero. They do a very similar sort of thing where they, they say they're going to do one thing, but they've actually... And, but they don't wait for Earth to respond. They just go ahead and do it and then say, well, you know, we knew you were going to agree, you know, it's cool. But obviously it's hiding their true intentions. Uh, the Mysterians themselves... Very typical jumpsuit-wearing aliens, but one thing I do like is that their helmets, it's almost like a full motorcycle helmet, and they wear uh, dark glasses, and then the, the faceplate is kind of like a smoky, translucent plastic. So what it does is it does actually a really good job, because their entire bodies are covered and their faces are obscured, of hiding the fact that these are Japanese actors playing the role. They really do a good job of looking alien. The only one who we see take the helmet off, of course, is Shirashi, and we're introduced to him before, so we know he's a Japanese man. So I thought that was pretty neat. Compared to, again, the Exians or the Keylocks from Destroy All Monsters, where it's very clearly, uh, you know, Japanese actors and actresses playing those roles, here these aliens are so disfigured from their nuclear war that they have to stay covered, so we don't get to see them. I think that was really kind of a situation where you took the limitation of, okay, we, everybody, you know, all our actors look like they're Japanese because we're in Japan, we're making a Japanese film, right? But here we want them to be aliens, so if we cover them up, it's making kind of the best of the situation. And it's and they, they're neat, they're color-coded, there doesn't seem to be, you know, you got to have bright colors, I guess, if you're an alien invasion in the 50s, so that was really neat. 
and uh, they, they never, I don't think they've caught on from a design standpoint as much, again, as the Exians did, but they're very memorable looking. They're very colorful, like I said, and I, I, I dig them. They also have the same kind of clipped, flat, monotone voice that the Exians did in the, at least in the Japanese uh, language version of, uh, of Monster Zero. So again, kind of setting the stage for things that would become the well, the tropes that Toho would draw from to make these films as we advance from the 50s into the 60s and forward. Uh, Shirashi becomes a collaborator for the Mysterians, and I thought this was a really interesting uh, uh, touch to the story because we find out very early on that Shirashi is this, you know, dedicated scientist type. You know, he's not interested in frivolities. In some ways, he's kind of uh, similar to Dr. Serizawa, not nearly as driven as Serizawa, though, but much in the same way that Serizawa was not interested in the niceties of society, he was only interested in his work. So is Shirashi. Of course, Shirashi is not nearly as smart as Serizawa, or he'd have figured out a way to beat them, but uh, that's neither here nor there. I think, again, it's the, the driven scientist, not just in Japanese science fiction, but even in uh, science fiction as a whole, both East and West, we see this type of trope. Now, the idea of him betraying his own race in the uh, name of science, I think this is something that's, it reads more modern to me than it does the 50s. I, I don't know, maybe that's just the bias I'm bringing to it, but I would have thought this would have not been the case in 1957 to have a character but turn his back on humanity in the name of, well, they have such great science, I must learn their magic science foo. So that that really, it always took me back the first time I saw this about him becoming a traitor and joining the other side. And again, like I said, it sounds more modernist to me than it does from kind of, you know, the 50s, golden age of science fiction, whatever you want to call it. So I'm, I'm interested what, what do you listeners think? Is that something that you've, we've, that we see more often in this era of science fiction and I'm just not thinking about it or I'm having a brain fart? Or is this, you know, was this kind of daring? I think it's a pretty daring move, to be honest with you, the idea of a, a guy collaborating with the Mysterians in, just from the time period I thought was a really neat touch. Of course, this being the 1950s, he does have a change of heart. He does come around in the end and makes the heroic sacrifice to make sure it all works out. So, uh, Lots and lots and lots, as I said, of military effects. We've got miniature tanks, melting tanks, the Alpha warships, Markalite cannons, you know, the Mysterian's Dome, Mysterian UFOs, jets, etc., etc., etc. There's all sorts of different styles of effects mixed in here. It's almost as if they were trying to do as many different types of effects as they could to try and run themselves through their paces, almost. Um, Subaraya and his effects team. So we get, you know, um, rear projection shots, as I said, POV shots from, you know, where we're looking for where the pilot or the model might be seeing, combined elements, the scratched on the film opticals, lots of explosions, uh, you know, just different designs for fantastic weaponry. It's really... You know, if, if you like miniature models blowing up and fighting each other, this is a movie for you. And I'm not even saying that facetiously. You know, if you enjoy the miniature aspect of the effects in these films, The Mysterians is right up your alley. Uh, the editing, though, is odd because it's, it's kind of jumpy in places. Never. It's just, you know, maybe not a smooth cut from one scene to another. Or if they're showing, you know, multiple effects runs, they're not, you know, there's a noticeable gap between them or something like that. And I think that kind of betrays the fact that this was the most complex film that they had done up to this point. Uh, 
Subaru and his crew would get much better at doing this kind of thing as they got more experience under their belt, which of course that makes perfect sense. Here we're not only doing a lot of you know, science fiction type war miniatures and effects, but also doing it in color and doing it in telescope and widescreen. So there's a lot of different things. There's a lot of levels of complexity here. And I think overall they come out pretty well. I mean, it's clear that this is kind of the infancy of the, the miniature work for them and that they would only get, uh, you know, they would improve from here. But it's, it's still really neat to watch. There's a lot of creative effects and a lot of long effect sequences. So if, you, if that's something that you're interested in, again, this film would definitely be up your alley with that. From a story standpoint, the, both the United States and the Soviet Union get involved. Um, this you know, makes sense again in the post-World War II era where Japan was trying to reach out to allies and things like that. You know, they, they were allies stronger, I think, of the West than the, the East. But, you know, it's one of those uh, spirit of cooperation, which is very common in Asian science fiction films, more so, I think, than we saw in in the West at the same time, where we had more distrust of, you know, oh, maybe it's a commie spaceship, or they're, they're communists from space, or something like that, whereas, you know, I think the Japanese always try to present themselves in their films as, you know, we need to work together because humanity is more important than our political differences and all that good stuff. Um, it does lead to some unintentionally uh, groan-worthy scenes, though, where we have the conference between all the different nations of the world, and someone will speak in English, and then the, um, the Japanese translator will repeat the same words in Japanese. So if you're watching it subtitled, you get in English, and then you get the same thing repeated subtitled in English. And this goes on a couple, a couple of times, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is really ridiculous. And it's kind of, like I said, it's a little groan-inducing to watch the dialogue being repeated twice. It's like, oh, just move on. Move on, please. It's, it's, a, it's trying for authenticity, but this is something that could have been left on the cutting room floor, and we just kind of accept it as an audience, I think. The big fight at the end, it seems to go on forever in places because you just get long sequences without any dialogue or just basic dialogue of Markalites at 30% power or something like that, you know. And and it, again, it's really neat effects and it's very novel to see and it's cool to see the Markalite cannons for the first time. They actually drop them with parachutes, which I think is hilarious. And you see that they are, in fact, on little tank treads so they can roll forward. But when you get, you know, four or five minutes of nonstop just blasting back and forth between the Mysterian base and, a Mar and the Markalite cannons, it's like, okay, can we do something else here for a minute? Can we cut to back inside? So it's, you know, again, it, it's an effects movie. It's, um... You know, that's what you expect. I mean, everything, all the money's up there on the screen. There's no question about that, but it does kind of drag a little bit. I do like the Markalite paradrop, as I said. That is a really neat sequence. I like that um, they really, in that scene, they seem to pay attention to the physics of dropping something that heavy with the parachutes and kind of a realistic fall as they're, they're dropped out of the airships. I think that's a really well-realized effect. This final fight is where their second Mogura comes up, and we see him actually burrowing under the ground, appropriate, as he is modeled after a mole and named after a mole. Well, he is not quite as effective as his uh, previous uh, incarnation, as this Mogura burrows right underneath the Markalite cannon, pokes his head up, and then the Markalite falls on him, destroying him. It, it It's a complete and utter moment of unintentional hilarity, because he's like, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm oh, crap, you know. So, it, it, I mean, I don't know if it was meant to be into, uh, funny or not. I'm assuming not, because there's not a lot of comic relief anywhere else in this movie. But it is really, really funny to watch this. And it, 
I mean, it, and it, it looks really neat. It's it's the same as when they dropped Mogura down the bridge. It's a reasonable way for a robot to be beat. Something heavy falling on him. It's kind of the fog of war. You know, your your best lay. You know, uh, what is it? All, all battle plans go to hell when the first shot is fired. Something like that. So, I, I thought it was a, a neat touch, and it's cool that we get to see another Mogura. It's not he's not a unique robot. They have multiples of them, which I thought was nice. The ending is sort of a downer, which is uh, not atypical for Japanese science fiction films of this nature, but, you know, a little unexpected, because the Mysterians retreat, and they say, oh, well, you know, if they come back, it'll be in greater numbers and with greater force. And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right, yeah. But the ending does have a, a you know, a, a silver lining, where it's the idea, well, we all work together, all the nations of the world, to repel them, and we'll do it again if they ever come back. So that's a more hopeful message. Uh, than the the downbeat. Well, it's only a matter of time for they come back and kill us all. You know, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it's the ending that fits the film. You know, the the aliens retreat and then everyone looks on pensively. That's that's what you expect in an alien invasion film like this. Uh, it's an okay film. Uh, you know, the the 1950s equivalent to what we would call nowadays a uh, summer popcorn movie. Lots of colorful special effects and explosions, but really not much in the way of either story or acting. It introduces a memorable, you know, somewhat silly monster in Mogra. He was memorable enough, like I said, to be brought back in the 90s in a much more popular form, to be honest. And the Mysterians do, in fact, form the basis, as I said, for many other such invaders that would menace uh, Japan and the world in Toho's later efforts. It's worth owning because of its historical value, not really a standout film taken uh, as a film experience. I think the uh, this is one where the visuals really outstrip the story, there's a lot of neat effects, and you can see the, uh, you know, kind of the genesis of a lot of things that would come later. It's definitely worth watching. If you like alien invasion films from the 50s, I'm thinking like War of the Worlds, Invaders from Mars, you know, that, that whole cycle of films. And this one totally fits in with that. And it's definitely an evening's diversion, an evening's entertainment. I think, the, I think kids would probably be bored with it at parts, but then be right back on board when the fighting all started. So I think that's probably an okay, um, an okay choice. There's obviously nothing questionable as far as content or anything like that, except for a totally not titillating at all scene with, um, uh, I think, it, is it, I don't know if it's Hiroki or, or um, I think it's Hiroki taking a bath. Is it Hiroki? Now I don't remember. Now I've got to try and remember if it was Hiroki or Atsuko. I think it's Atsuko now that I think about it, taking a bath. And, but does, you know, everybody takes baths. Uh, and the idea that the Mysterians are kidnapping women might be a little scary, but it's no sillier than Mars Needs Women or Frankenstein Meets a Space Monster to, <laughs> to throw a couple of schlock U.S. films in there. Now, I will say this, The Mysterians is extremely hard to find on DVD right now. Uh, Tokyo Shock, which is Media Blaster's uh, Asian sci-fi uh, arm, did release a DVD of it back in, I want to say, like 2005 or something like that, around that time. It is out of print, and it goes for a pretty penny on Amazon and on eBay. I think the listing on Amazon that I looked at before this recording was like $90, $80, something like that. So... Um, I, I have a bootleg from back before the film was available in the United States. I've stuck with my bootleg. Part of me wishes I had gotten the Tokyo Shock release, but mm, that wasn't, that wasn't in the cards for me back then. So I stick with my boot. 
Um, there's not much difference between the U.S. and Japanese versions of the film. A few minutes here and there trimmed. The story, as such as it is, is pretty much the same. So you're not really losing anything if you get a Japanese or an American version of it. Uh, like I said, hard to find, but if you you know you can find it, you can track it down if if it's worthwhile. Uh, I'd be interested if anyone out there has seen it or uh, you know has some thoughts on the Mysterians. It did get a U.S. release. You know, uh, some of our older listeners may have seen it in theaters or uh, playing on TV and creature features. It was um, you know featured not regularly, but it did make its rounds on the horror host circuit um, during the you know the rise of those in the in the 70s. And, uh, you know, so, hey, interested in hearing, as always, what you guys thought of this one, if, if anyone's seen it or has any opinions on it. So, uh, final verdict, eh, pretty good. Not as good as, uh, and not nearly as fun as some other films that would use elements from it, but you can definitely see why this is such an important film in to- Toho's pantheon, if only for what it set up and what it did for um, the effects crew. And it's definitely an effects-driven movie, so if you like your miniatures, you'll probably enjoy The Mysterians. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun. Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge Edo. The Shoguns. They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun Warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Now we're going to take a look at the next issue in our continuing coverage of Marvel's Shogun Warriors. Our issue this time up is Shogun Warriors number 16. Shogun Warriors 16 was released by Marvel, of course. Cover dated May 1980, released on or about February 5th, 1980. Information comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics at dcindexes.com. Our writer is Doug Mensch and penciler Herb Trimpey, back from their fill-in break last issue. Inker, Mike Esposito. Letterer, Dana Albers. Colorist, Ben Sean. Editor, Alan Milgram. And editor-in-chief, Jim Shooter. Title of our story is Death of Innocence. Returning after their epic encounter with Dr. Demonicus, the Shogun pilots, elect for some R&R at Richard Carson's place in the Hollywood Hills. They are met by a shotgun-wielding Dina, who has been keeping an eye on the place since the Men in Black incident a while back. No sooner do the pilots arrive, though, than the aforementioned Men in Black return, tearing apart Carson's home with high-tech weaponry. The assailants then gas the pilots and force them to turn over their pendants before they withdraw, leaving a guard behind. The pilots overcome their stupor and attack the guard, revealing him to be a machine when Dina blasts him in half with her shotgun. Pilots move outside to try to get back to the Shoguns, but are quickly pinned down by fire from more men in black. With Dina covering him, Richard is able to get to his motorcycle and run the gauntlet of enemy fire to board riding. Quickly taking out the remaining men in black, the other pilots quickly get to their Shoguns, while Richard contacts Dr. Tambora to warn him. 
Communication is cut short, however, as the followers of the light are under attack. The Shoguns blast off into low Earth orbit and rocket to the Shogun Sanctuary. But our heroes are too late. The Sanctuary lay in ruins, and Dr. Tambura is mortally wounded. The other followers, Charn, Basque, and Sherna, are already dead. Tambura tells the pilots that they are on their own, and tells them not to fail the followers or the Earth. The moment of mourning is quickly dashed by the arrival of a telepathic alien presence in the form of a towering beast. A strange mix of insectoid and reptilian shapes, the massive green monster orders the Shoguns to surrender as the Earth is not ready for the level of technology the followers possessed. Seeking to prevent humanity from getting a premature place in the cosmos, the Shogun warriors and their pilots must be destroyed, along with the entities known as the Fantastic Four, S.H.I.E.L.D., Doctor Doom, and Anthony Stark. Enraged, the Shoguns press their attacks, smashing the alien with blows, blasting it with rocket arrows, and then burying the beast under a massive rock slide. Epilogue In the shadow of the former sanctuary, four graves are dug by the fingers of a giant machine, and four bodies wrapped in funeral shrouds are buried, their graves marked with the symbol of the followers of light. Genji Odashu says that they are now alone, with no teleportation, technology, maintenance or training, and most importantly, no more guidance. Richard Carson adds that they now also have a huge responsibility, and that it is time they started taking care of themselves. To which Alongo Savage simply adds that it is time to atone for their failures. Next issue. Forced to come of age, the Shoguns seek a new life, only to find... Peril in the first passage. Wow! Doug Mensch was not kidding when he said there was a big change coming to the Shogun Warriors uh, a few issues back in the letters column. The, to borrow a term from Andrew Leyland, the status quo of the series has just been really drastically and pretty irrevocably altered as we start the final run of issues on the series here. I mean, they were not kidding as far as, uh, you know, changing things up from what had been, because this pretty much wipes out a lot of the elements that started the series and was the driving force behind the series up till this point. Uh, let, let's get into the notes. Uh, cover? Our cover is interesting in that it pretty much spoils everything right there, you know? <laughs> uh, we have... Um, Riding, kneeling in the foreground, holding the limp form of uh, Dr. Tambura. We see Dangard Ace and Kambatra in the background. We see um, the um, Genji attending to, I think that's uh, Sherna. And we see um, Ilongo Savage running up as well. We see the ruins of the Shogun Sanctuary. And so it, uh, and then the text reads, The death of the followers of light, the destruction of Shogun Sanctuary, you dare not miss the light that failed. I mean, pretty much lays it all out there, doesn't it? Uh, it's actually really like the uh, the use of uh, Trimpy's proportions here. His writing is kneeling, and so his hand is in the extreme foreground. His knee and fore, and excuse me, his knee and lower leg behind that, and it just keeps pulling back as we see him. So it's a really nice use of perspective to show the scale. And again, with the use of smaller figures versus the Shoguns to give the idea of scale, which Trimpy has used pretty much throughout this run. It's a pretty nice cover. I'm not real big on covers that, that spoil the inside story, but in this case, you have to admit, it does deliver on what it promises. 
Turning over to the splash page now, we see the Shoguns zooping around um, on the California coast with Dangard Ace actually in the water. Uh, it's the Shoguns relaxing, which is a nice touch. You know, not counting the fill-in last time, we had been kind of at a high pitch with the outer space battle against um, Dr. Demonicus, so it's nice to see a little downtime, as it were, for the Shoguns. Again, a good use of perspective and scale, as I like we see uh, a three-masted... Well, I should know with three men. It looks like two... Well, I'm not really good with sailing ships, but it's a sail ship, a sailing ship right in front of Dangard Ace, and so we see good use of scale of the sailors on the ship as well as the mass and sails versus the size of Dangard Ace as he splashes around. Page two, panels two through four, <laughs> Dangard actually picks up the sailing ship and mush pushes it out of the way into calmer waters. All this makes me think of is Dangard Ace as a little kid in a bathtub playing with his toy boats. <laughs> My children are young enough that we still have, you know, playtime in the bath with little boats and such, and that's all this makes me think of. It's very adorable. Also reminds me of the uh, anecdote when Steven Spielberg was filming 1941. He really was interested in seeing the models of the, 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 the submarine, Japanese submarine, and the uh, American fighter plane that was used in it, the miniatures, and to the fact that he took them to his house uh, over a weekend when they weren't filming. And I, don't, I forget who said it, but it, uh, they said, Stephen, these, these models aren't going to last very long if you don't stop playing with them in your bathtub. <laughs> I, I don't know where that uh, mental connection came from, but that was what I thought of with this. Uh, page three, as they go up to, um, as the pilots go to Carson's place, Dina shows up with a shotgun. The image of Dina with a shotgun just really amuses me for some reason. I'm not really sure why. Maybe it's, you know, just because, uh, she's, she's just been a constant in Carson's, uh, home life here for the run of this series, but her wielding a double barrel shotgun is just great. I love it. Uh, and, uh, she, it is a great, but she just cocks it right behind Richard's head, and he's like, D -d "Dina," and he—it's like, "You better hope it's Dina. You're—you're you're out of luck, pal." Turning over now to, to page six, we get another full-page splash as the the Men in Black make their assault on Carson's house. It looks like something more out of a Shield book or a Captain America book. There's, um, you know, blasts from these uh, high-tech blasters going over the place to Men in Black jumping down on zip lines, uh, breaking through walls and doors. Uh, there's some great onomatopoeia. Sean Engel would appreciate this. We get backed, choom, brack, 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 and kesh. So it's really, again, it, it's, it's a kind of, I don't want to say out of character, but more something that we haven't seen a lot from Trimpy in this series. A lot of, uh, human on human, uh, you know, violent interaction like this. Although I do have to say Genji's legs looks like they're made out of rubber because she's just, she looks like an animated model in here because her leg is just like, but it looks like Plastic Man almost. Also interesting is we can't, all three of the faces of the Shogun pilots are hidden from us, and a lot of the men in black have their back to us. The only named character whose face we see is actually Dina. Uh, but a good, I like the panel a lot. It's very dynamic, and again, good to get some action that's on a human scale in the book instead of using the giant robots like we normally do. Turning over now to page 10, panel 8. Uh, Dina just absolutely blasts this dude in half with the great sound effect of BRAM! Which is, uh, it's like a, a less potent version of Bran, I guess, I don't know, but... I mean, the first time I'm reading this, they, they do spoil it, because earlier on the page, they break the guy's uh, sunglasses off with an ashtray, and we see that he's a... 
if not a machine, at least a cyborg, because he said they knocked the lenses off of his eyes, and so he can't see. And then Dina just takes aim and just kablam, blows this dude in half, and we see him just literally going to pieces with his, uh, it looks like Darth Maul, with his top half going one direction and his bottom half going the other direction. Um, gets back to a universal truth. You can always brutalize robots. Uh, everybody knows the, I think at this point, the uh, anecdote from Batman the Animated Series. They learned early on, you can always beat the living snot out of robots because robots are not alive. So it put to good use here many years earlier. So. Turning over now to page 14, panel 3. Uh, Dina with the shotgun again. You know, she, she's like Cockroach Hamilton with this thing to throw another Marvel Bronze Age reference out there. As she just turns around and absolutely blasts the living heck out of another man in, man in black who's sneaking up on Ilanga with, again, the sound effect of BRAM! Dina's great. I mean, I'd love to see her and Cockroach Hamilton go at it. Anybody else? I'm trying to think of any other Marvel characters from this era known for using a shotgun. Johnny Blaze would use the Hellfire shotgun later, so there you go. Johnny Blaze, Dina, and Cockroach Hamilton cruising around, you know, wandering from town to town, riding motorcycles, blasting people with shotguns. There's your all-new Marvel now, right there, baby. Further down the page, panel 5, we get Richard Carson on his motorcycle, uh, flying through the, the bur gauntlet of bur blasts from the Men in Black here. Richard looks kind of vaguely like Evil Knievel here. I think it's because the bike is actually up in the air, jumping with a big cloud of billowing uh, smoke behind him. And again, we get Trimpy filling the panel with different blasts from the, uh, from the Men in Black. Really neat neat panel here and i like it and i like again seeing the shoguns using their skills outside of piloting giant robots you know we we've seen several times with uh, genji using her piloting skills and elongo using his scientific background and I'm, again here richard gets to use his uh, stunt driving background much like he did actually in the fill-in last time so i thought that was a that was a nice panel turning over to page uh, 16 panel one as Richard calls back into Shogun Sanctuary, we actually see all four of the Followers of Light. This is the last time we'll see all four of them in the issue. Um, Dr. Tambora's in the foreground, and then we see Charn, Bask, and Sherna kind of in the background. And, you know, uh, hope you didn't like them too much because they're gone. I never really made much of a connection to these characters other than Tambora, and mostly was that Tambora was kind of a, kind of a dick. Uh, you know, they, they served their purpose, you know, they were there to give Tambora somebody to talk to and to be the background support, but, you know, I, I think if this had been, they tell this story in the modern day, either I think they would drop some of them, or we'd get stronger personalities for them. I'm thinking like the, um, the quote-unquote home team, like from the show Arrow or the show The Flash, where they have to have a support staff, you know, back at base, feeding them information in the field. Which is a cliche I'm, I'm not really thrilled with being so popular nowadays, but that's that's kind of a, a a topic for another day's discussion. Here it makes sense because you know we need the scientific and uh, background and the maintenance and all that aspect that the followers of light provided for the shoguns, but not really mourning the loss here. Uh, turning over to page 19, panel five. Uh, the Shogun Sanctuary is in ruins. It's a good image where we see, we're looking kind of over the shoulders of the three pilots as they look down at the ruined sanctuary. You see the giant Ankh has been crashed to the to the ground and the whole building looks like it's kind of collapsed in on itself. It's, it's a really good image, but it's kind of an odd choice in panel layout. I would have assumed that this would have been at least a half a page panel to really show the carnage 
but Trimpy fits it into, it's about a third the height of the page, and I'd say maybe maybe uh, you know four-fifths of the width right in the middle. There's actually a very narrow little panel on its left of showing the uh, pilots disembarking. You probably could have gotten rid of that panel and made this one a little larger. It still is a really nice panel. The coloring is very harsh with the foreground hill being kind of orange, the, the Shogun pilots themselves being in red, and then the, the carnage of the uh, and surrounding area is kind of in purple with then the white and yellow of the sanctuary itself. It's a really nice image. It immediately sells that, you know, there's there's no chance the followers of light survived this. I think it's a really good piece of art. Just uh, I, I would have maybe framed it a little differently. Going over now to page 22, panel 6, uh, our ubiquitous monster shows up. It is not given a name, so I'll simply call it the alien monster. And it is definitely alien. It looks like something from Power Lords, if anybody remembers... Uh, that line with Griptog and, oh, I'm trying to remember some of the other monsters from Power Lords. I can see them all in my mind. We had bun a bunch of them when I was a kid. Griptog was the one I remember with the big orange six-fingered hands that could swivel and, and stuff like that. My brother had the blue guy with, like, the they had, like, kind of, like, a shiny chest. Look it up, Power Lords, people, look it up. Anyway, so he does look like something out of Power Lords. Um, he also looks a little bit like the, the renegade monster Pinsir from GoBots. You know, I'm throwing a lot of 80s references out here. So, you know, uh, go to toyarchive.com. That's a good site if you want uh, GoBot references or counterx.net. Check that one out as well. Uh, but it's got a, he's got a giant mouth, creepy long limbs, uh, nicely designed, all told. He's got like, mostly green with a big red V upside down on his head. He's got some red ups elsewhere. Really does look like a monster that would be hard to pull off in any medium except a comic or animation. So good use by, good job, I should say, of by Trippy of using the medium to his advantage. This kind of reminds me of the, um, the Star Child, which was a, a creature that would have been difficult to pull off in live action, but using a, uh, a drawn medium, you can really get a lot of mileage out of. So, good-looking monster here. On page 23, uh, the aliens lay out their motivation. It sounds almost like Mensch is seeding stories for other titles and characters here by name-dropping, you know, the FF, S.H.I.E.L.D., Iron Man, Doom. I'll be interested to see... If this, how much of this plays out here in Shogun Warriors versus how much of this is carried on and played out in other titles. I know Doug Mensch had a run a little bit after this on Fantastic Four. I don't remember him doing Iron Man. And as far as S.H.I.E.L.D., I have no idea if he's ever tackled Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. But it'd be interesting to see because this is a very kind of a, a very typical science fiction concept. Earth is not ready to join its place among the cosmos, so we will blast you back to the Stone Age kind of thing. And I think it fits with the motif of the Shogun Warriors and kind of the stories that Mench has been telling. So it's, it's actually really interesting and really exciting for me. But I'm, I'm very curious of the specific name dropping of these other members of the Marvel Universe. Also, of course, very nicely setting it da uh, smack dab in the middle of the Marvel Universe. But here again, we can we get the name S.H.I.E.L.D. when previously, uh, during the middle of the Dr. Demonica storyline, S.H.I.E.L.D. was referred to but not mentioned. Uh, maybe Mench was being coy back then, you know, just uh, trying to, you know, not just throw the name out there, but, you know, it all works out in the end. It's clear that this is, you know, like I said, um, part of the Marvel Universe, and I think the story is improved by it, uh, even if it really, at this point, hasn't interacted much with the Marvel Universe other than with a little bit of S.H.I.E.L.D. and, of course, Dr. Demonicus. But we'll be interesting to see if we get more uh, Marvel stuff as we go forward with the uh, the final storyline here. 
Turning over to now to page 26. This is our nice action sequence that we get here to kind of fill our uh, robot versus monster action quotient. Everyone gets a nice piece of the fight. Panel 2, Dangard Ace gets a judo chop with a wonderful shawam. It's like shawam wow uh, uh, <laughs> sound effect here as he chops the monster in the back of the head. Uh, that's a rabbit punch. I think that'd be illegal if this was, uh, you know, Queen's Rules of Pugilism. Um, and then uh, Combatra gets a roundhouse kick in uh, panel three with Wump. It almost looks like Combatra is doing a hurricane kick if you're a Street Fighter II fan, you know, a half circle back with a kick. Uh, but very, very nice little action sequence, and I like that everybody gets a chance to lay the smackdown on this, and you can tell just from, I think, the pacing of the fight and the way that the fight is choreographed that the Shogun pilots are pissed off and they are not taking this laying down. So they really whoop on this guy, and they bury him pretty quick underneath the rock slide. Finally, turn over now to page 30, which is our epilogue, um, the burial and funeral for the followers of the light. This, honestly, this is the most somber moment that we've gotten in the series to date. Um, you know, it's a book about giant robots and monsters, so you don't expect a lot of kind of heavy stuff like this. But so that really makes it stand out, especially, you know, seeing the um, the Shogun's very carefully placing the the, the shroud wrap body of one of the followers into the trench that is dug as a grave. And then we see, um, you know, the, the sunrise, the sun setting, I'm assuming, behind the four gravestones casting these large shadows onto the Shogun pilots in the foreground. Very somber, very moody uh, artwork by Trimpy in it. Uh, the um, inking by Esposito helps as well with some of the blacks on the both the grave markers and then the shadows. Uh, you really feel for the pilots at this point. You know, their whole world has changed literally in one afternoon. They've they've just it seems like they've just gotten used to the idea of being Shogun pilots after, you know, saving the whole world with beating Demonicus and now they come home and everything falls apart in, you know, immediately after that. So you really feel for them. And the uh, the very downer ending here with Savage saying and maybe it's time we atone for our failure. You know, so what what are they going to do from here? Now they've begun the almost a hero's quest where they no longer have any support other than themselves. So I am I'm really intrigued by that. This is a very strong issue from a story standpoint. It's great to have Doug and her back on the book again. Now the fill in felt like a fill in last time. Feels like we're really back into the swing of things here. Big changes go down, and and I for one as a reader I'm utterly intrigued as to where the story goes from here. It's not as fun. As previous issues, due to the grim subject matter, I mean, that's kind of a given, but it's a good comic and a very good swerve for those of us who've been reading along from the beginning, and, and I, I haven't read ahead. I read one issue uh, as I prepare to, to to cover it on the on the, on the the show here, so I have no idea what's coming next. I am super, super excited to get to the next issue of this, and can't wait. Just good issue. This series has uh, really been a treat, and this one is is no different. Uh, taking a quick look at ads as we flip through, we get, uh, oh, Bubble Yum. I remember Bubble Yum. It was very chewy. You got, uh, I like this one from Whoppers. Get ready for summer hikes, camping, cookouts, camp cook kit. Includes three-fourth quarts covered kettle, seven-inch fry pan, seven-inch dish, eight-ounce plastic cup, carrying case, a $9.99 value for $4.99 and one Whoppers wrapper, and it nests and locks together into a handy 7-inch kit. I like Whoppers. I'm not really sure what Whoppers has to do with camping, 
Uh, but it's pretty neat, and, uh, you know, I can't imagine this stuff was the most sturdy stuff in the world, but still pretty neat, and getting out and enjoying the great outdoors. A couple of pages in, we get a full-page ad for Star Trek toys, and these are Star Trek the motion picture toys, a must for every Star Trekky fan, this extraterrestrial galactic collection of goodies. And we get the three and three-quarter inch movable detailed figures. You get Scotty, Dr. McCoy, Elia, Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock, Decker, an assortment of, and then the assortment of aliens. There's an Arcturian, Rigelian, a Megarite, a Klingon, a Zaranite, and a Betelgeusian. Some of those I don't know. And then they got the large 12-inch ones. And we get the Star Trek belt buckle. And then uh, models with the USS Enterprise, the Command Bridge, and the Klingon ship. All very neat stuff. This is from Heroes World. Um, oh, man. I mean, remember the days when, when they couldn't show pictures of the toys? Just line art pictures of the toys? Yeah. And, I, I mean, I, I'm kind of an oddball in that I like the Star Trek The Motion Picture uniforms. Uh, so this might have been right up my alley if I was a bit older. I mean, I was only born in 1980, so these were before my time. Also interesting is that it looks like the 3 and 3 quarter inch Ilea is wearing her duty uniform, but the 12 inch Ilea is wearing her probe outfit. Ooh, spoilery. Let's see, moving forward in the book. Got a nice one for Epic Illustrated, the all-new adult fantasy magazine from Marvel. Uh, it shows... Um, not sure this first one is, and then the Silver Surfer, and uh, I'm not sure what this last one is either, now that I think about it. $5 savings certificate for new subscribers with the Stanley $5 bill <laughs> down there at the bottom, with, uh, and up top we get Hulk and Spidey smashing through a brick wall. Uh, Marvel Magazines will grab you with a full-page house ad. Yes, I want to be grabbed as we see Dracula, the Hulk, Conan... Moon Knight and Howard the Duck, and these are for the magazines. Crazy, Epic, Howard the Duck, Hulk, Marvel Preview, Savage Sword of Conan, and Tomb of Dracula. We get the What's Wrong with This Picture Marvel Comics ad again, which I really like. Uh, let's see, moving forward, we get bullpen bulletins with lots of books uh, that Marvel is shilling at you, along with the stand soapbox. We get um, full-page house ad, the top is Conan the Barbarian for S and Savage Sword. The middle is Thor. And the bottom is um, the thing in every month in Marvel 2-in-1. And then, of course, we have a hostess ad. Thor meets the Ricochet Monster. Thy malevolent masters from the outer galaxy hath made thee strong, Ricochet. But now thou dost face the god of the living lightning. Crack! Oof! Thou art truly well-named. Thou dost turn mine own strength against me. What I hurl at thee, thou returnest. If we proceed in this fashion, we gain naught but a checkmate. Therefore, I will hurl at thee something thou wilt absorb and keep unto thyself. Hostess, fruit pies, apple and cherry. Thy evil masters made thee a creature of force, but knew nothing of the goodness of hostess fruit pies. In truth, thou wilt keep the light, tender crust, and real fruit filling for thyself. Mine mallet sends thee back from whence thou came, and perhaps thou masters too shall fall under the spell of hostess fruit pies. You get a big delight in every bite of hostess fruit pies. Yeah, Thor just monologues the entire time here because um, the ricochet monster 
is is silent. He looks like something out of an Atlas comic, a um, a Marvel Atlas, not Atlas Seaboard. A big blue-skinned uh, monster with uh, four toes on each foot and four fingers on each hand, wearing like a a pink loincloth with little uh, horn ridges on top of his head. Uh, and Thor, Thor looks really great, to be honest. I mean, I'd like to see these two guys actually beat each other up in a actual comic and not one that's solved with fruit pie. I actually dig this one pretty much. I'm not a big Thor guy. I mostly like Thor in the context of the Avengers. But this seems like an interesting little, uh, interesting little ad. I know I like it. Thor looks great. I'm not sure who drew this. I am not good at that. Uh, I know some folks can... Andy Rayland, again, is another one. Mike Bailey is another one. Can look at these hostess ads and say, Oh, that's such and such. I am not good at that. I've never had been. Uh, but this really does... Uh, this is a nice one. I like this one. So, that's all I've got for Shogun Warriors number 16. Uh, like I said, I'm I'm good issue. I'm real excited about where the story's going from here. I have no idea, so it's going to be... Uh, going to be a surprise for me as well as everybody else, so... All right, I am going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Star Trek. Comic books. Mythology. Video games. Toys. Star Wars. Just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with, and be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, listener feedback. I hold some feedback in my hot little hands right now. And if you would like to get in touch with Earth Destruction Directive, you can always email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. Or you can send me a message on Facebook, Earth Destruction as the first name, Directive as the last name. And all this information will be in the outro on the end of the show. So uh, let's get right down to it. Their first email is entitled Giant Monster Clip Show and comes from Gene Hendricks, a.k.a. Gene Gene the Podcasting Machine. And Gene writes, Luke, another great episode of Earth Destruction Directive. I haven't seen any Gamera movies except for the MST3K versions, but it doesn't sound like this one would be for me. As you said, if I saw it as a kid, I would probably have loved it, but the clip show element along with the kid focus probably would annoy me if I watched it now. That being said, I might just introduce this one to my daughter. We just recently watched King Kong, which is the first giant monster movie that she didn't hide her face. Oh, very nice. Uh, Just an aside, the first giant monster movie I watched was King Kong. I'm almost certain of it with my dad when I was a kid. Uh, Getting back to Gene's email. In fact, I had her cracking up at one point at the same thing my dad pointed out to me. When Kong is shaking the crew off of the log, everyone does a fairly standard scream on the way down except for the last guy. He screams... And then as if realizing he's about to get hit, switches to ooh! Makes me laugh every time. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. It's been a, been a few years since I watched King Kong. I'll have to pull that clip up, uh, Gene. Gene continues, on the Shogun Warriors front, this continues to sound like an interesting series that I should pick up at some point. Giant robots set firmly in my favorite age of Marvel. 
what's not to love. Of course, that means I need to get off my ass and search the bins for it. Maybe at some upcoming cons I'm going to, assuming I don't spend all my money on Quasar appearances. Keep up the good work, Gene. Uh, P.S. If you need a teammate for commentaries, I'd like to throw my hat in the ring. Uh, and P.P.S. You know, for all I like King Kong, I think King Kong vs. Godzilla has a huge cheat in it, but I'll save that for next time. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, the thing about Shogun Warriors, Gene, is that I, I've only ever found the one issue in a bin. I had ended up having to buy them off of eBay. So, good hunting to you, sir, because I have never been able to really find them. But if you can find them, I'm sure they're not going to be super expensive. So, good luck to you. And, uh, really, Quasar appearances, I mean, how many are there? Like, You know, I'm sure there's more than I'm thinking. All in his book run, like three years? Sheesh, who would have thought? Uh, as far as commentaries, hey man, totally. I, I know I get a, people keep asking me about commentaries. I guess I'm going to have to do one at some point. I'll just have to figure out what's a good uh, good film to cover and, and what would be an interesting um, film to do commentary on. You know, so definitely keep that in mind. And uh, Gene's reference to the cheat in King Kong vs Godzilla. Gene did send me an email that I is not going to be on the stack today, but he does address that cheat. So uh, keep your ears peeled for that. Uh, Gene is the uh, proprietor of the Hammer Strikes at thehammerstrikes.com. Uh, he also does a couple of podcasts. He does the Hammer Podcast, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. The Quantum Cast, also part of Two True Freaks. And Anime Freaks, along with Dr. Bill Robinson, also at twotruefreaks.com. So give those a, a listen. I think you'll really enjoy them. Hammer Podcast is a great show, and that it really is whatever Gene decides to talk about. That's really just, uh, you never know what the topic's going to be. Really a good show. And of course, Anime Freaks I'm a little partial to because I was on it. So, you know, give that a try. Thanks for writing in, Gene. Our next email comes from Bright Star Angie, and Angie writes, Thanks for reviewing. And the email says, Hey, thanks for reviewing Alpha's Christmas special. I sometimes wish I was a part of this at age eight. And uh, Angie, can you imagine the kind of stories you could tell if you were in Alpha's Magical Christmas? You, you'd never pay for your own dinner ever again. You know, you'd, you'd always have people, at least in the fanboy community, that you could probably impress with that story enough and the stuff that went on backstage to... <laughs> to at least cover your supper as we say down here so angie thank you very much for writing in glad you dug that and our last is from facebook and comes from jack dower and jack writes commander jack and eddie congrats on the promotion does it come with its own mecca uh given the price i know the price of fuel has been going down but i don't know if it's going down that much and i don't know what the heck the insurance rate would be for my own personal mecca I've never really looked into it. I'm almost afraid to look into it. You know, it's one of those things that if you have to ask, you know what I'm saying? Uh, so, uh, Jack writes, I was listening to you discuss Destroy All Planets, starring the only turtle who can parboil the hair. <laughs> Camera. You mentioned the prevalent kid vibe this film has. That is the reason I showed this film to my five-year-old niece and seven-year-old nephew as their first kaiju film. Hmm? Very good thinking there, Jack. They loved it so much that, quote, that Japanese monster movie now joins Batman 66, Abbott and Costello, and Scooby-Doo on their list of things they request Uncle Jack to bring over on my visits. They have grown so fond of the monsters that I promised them a kaiju DVD if they showed me a good report card. They have both started getting A's instead of the B's and C's they used to get. Good job, Jack. Better living through Kaiju. I approve, sir, wholeheartedly. Jack continues, this is why I have grown to love things like Godzilla's Revenge, Son of Godzilla, and the 70s Hanna-Barbera show. Don't get me wrong, I do not want all of the kaiju material, or even the majority of it, taking on a campy kid vibe, but some of it should. 
Let's face it, if we get them while they're young, they may just stay around a while. The success of Walt Disney is his vision of families having fun together. I can see no reason that would not work in the kaiju realm also. And I'm going to stop Jack's message right here and say, I agree with you. I agree with you completely, because when I was a kid, the stuff I watched with my dad formed the basis for the stuff I'm interested in now. Like I said earlier, watching King Kong, watching the original Godzilla, watching Jason the Argonauts and the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, got me interested in these, you know, science fiction and fantasy sorts of stories that still drive my interest today. Even taking it one step further, watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein made me a lifelong fan of horror. Because if you learn at an early age that it's all just make-believe and you're nothing to be scared of, then you can start appreciating it for what it is. Not everybody necessarily has that background. Not everyone necessarily has that personality. But I think if you introduce, uh, you know, the young folks in your life, whether they're your kids, your nieces and nephews, you know, friends of the family, if you introduce them to stuff, it's like, hey, if they like it and they enjoy it, let's celebrate it and let's move along with that. If they don't, okay, fine, we'll find something else. You know, uh, in a, in a non monster related sense you know i'm i'm well known for my you know love of uncle scrooge and uncle scrooge comics both by carl barks and don rosa and and other creators well you know i've kind of i've begun passing that on to my kids you know letting them read uncle scrooge comics watching ducktales and they've begun to enjoy that now whether or not they stick with it who can say but i've introduced it to them and i'm hoping that they will get the same enjoyment of reading these uh you know duck comics that i do when they're excuse me, when they're older. So we'll see. And, uh, and I applaud Jack's efforts here and using Kaiju to bribe kids into getting good grades. I mean, that's just wonderful. I love it. Getting back into Jack's message. Here's my question. First, I agree with your assessment of the art downgrade in issue 15. Um, Jack's referring to Shogun Warriors. It wasn't horrible, but a noticeable step down, similar to how I feel about DeVito's version of the Master of Foul play when compared to Meredith's with the Shogun Warriors series coming to an end. What's next? Thanks for the great show. Keep them stomping, Jack Dower. Jack, of after Shogun Warriors is finished, we are going to be, and this ties in with your PS, which I guess I should ring, just a suggestion. I think you and Sean Engel have a great chemistry. What about bringing him in as a co-host to cover the Marvel Godzilla series? Well, the Marvel Godzilla series, it is what is coming up after Shogun Warriors. Once we finish issue 20 of Shogun Warriors, and then Doug Mench's follow-up in Fantastic Four 226, we will be moving into um, Marvel's Godzilla series as our monthly comic, or I shouldn't say monthly, our regular comic feature. Uh, and and I, I've got the essential for that. I've got a few single issues. I, I really need to be more engaged i guess in buying that series at cons it's just now the price has gone up you know it's one of those things that again i missed the boat because i'm not a very good comic collector but be that as it may uh, as far as sean uh guesting i i like doing guest spots but the mechanics of how i record the show make uh, recording with guests a little more tricky uh, I do want to get more guests on this year. I've got a few more already penciled in. Sean is always welcome back, and I'm definitely going to try to have Sean back on. Him and I do really have a good uh, rapport with each other. Uh, I really I really like working with him on Just One of the Guys as well. So uh, definitely, and if we do, we'll, we'll be covering Marvel Godzilla most likely at that point. Uh, so, you know, look forward to that, and I'll see what I can work out on that end. And uh, you know, what do you guys think about other guests? I mean, are you enjoying having the guests on? I always enjoy having guests on because it's not just me talking for an hour and a half, you know. I hear myself talking all day long, and I can't imagine that anybody likes necessarily hearing me talk for 90 minutes. So having other voices in there breaks it up, and, and I really, you know, like I said, I had some great guests last year. I wouldn't have some more 
um, this year. I, uh, you know, all the thanks in the world to Chris for coming on, and I've got a few more lined up in the months ahead. So we will see how that goes. Jack, thank you very much for writing, and uh, you know, keep waving that penguin flag, man. Penguin, uh, he's, he, you know, it, it seems on Gotham, it's either. Oswald has a great week, or Oswald gets the living crap beat out of him. That seems to be the only <laughs> the only uh, states that can exist for Oswald on Gotham, but I'm, I'm still digging it. So, Thanks again for writing, and again, if you want to write in EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com, you can hit me up on Facebook, or you can tweet at me on Twitter. It'll be really short, but you can still tweet at me on Twitter. Or just get in touch, and we will read your feedback here on the show. So, that leads us to what is coming up next on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, next time on Earth Destruction Directive, we're going to be back, back in the small screen as we're taking a look at the next two episodes of the series Ultraman. And we're going to be looking at episodes 9 and 10. 9 features the monster Gabora, and 10 features one of the most well-known, if least reoccurring monsters in Ultra history, Jiris. And if you don't know why Jiris is uh, so memorable and well-known, well, you'll find out next time. But it's really kind of a, a nifty little uh, trick that Subaraya pulls with that. We will also have Shogun Warriors number 17, the first adventure of the Shoguns after the destruction of the Followers of the Light. I have not read this yet. I am very eager to read it and see where the story goes from here. Of course, we'll also have your feedback and emails and any news that fits or that comes up between now and then. We will definitely get those in there. And if you have have any tips or any uh, you know tidbits of news that you hear, please feel free to send them in and we'll be sure to include it in the show. So until then, I hope everyone really enjoyed our show this time out and keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle Eljacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.